0: Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Church Nottingham podcast, it's great to have you with us. My name is Amy and together with my husband, Johnny, we lead the church here in Nottingham, England. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. And if we can help you in any way at all, feel free to get in touch and email us at info at trinitychurchnottingham.org. Okay, let's jump into the podcast. Well, uh, let's have a quick straw poll. Would you... Raise your hand if you feel yourself to be fully and finally prepared for Christmas. That is to say, thank you, early, but keep them up, keep them up. That is to say you've done your shopping, you have, uh, you've got a turkey or a goose or a, whatever it is you're planning, it's in the freezer, it's ready to roll, or whatever your tradition is, you're... Okay, I'm, it's about 30... Could you put, the, put your hand up if you haven't and, and you feel woefully, woefully unprepared? Put your hand up if, like me, Christmas shopping starts on the 24th. Prime same-day delivery is your best friend. All right. There's a few of you. There's a few of you who are in my camp. Well, this is a time uh, where tradition, we have so many traditions around Christmas, don't we? Uh, We have, as soon as November hits, it feels like Slade, a band that we never listen to any other time of the year, unless you want to confess something this morning, returns, we have Paul McCartney, we have Mariah Carey, the the sort of Christmas medley, the Christmas mashup, we hear all the music, so many traditions around Christmas. And for those of you who are in in marriages, you know that actually a particular point of conflict, certainly in the early years of your marriage, centres around, looking over there, because I know some people for whom this is real, uh, centres around Christmas and particularly Christmas traditions. Because... If you're anything like me, you grow up with a strong tradition around Christmas, the way that things should be done. And uh, the way it worked in my house, which by the way, just for the sake of clarity, is the right way. (laughs) Is that uh, before church, my dad was a vicar, so before church, we'd be able to squeeze in one present. You could open up one present, so the the best present, the most special thing, the one that you didn't know Santa was going to bring you, but really you knew, Uh, and you you could, and that was the one you could take to church and show off at church. I remember one particular uh, Christmas wearing my England shell suit. (laughs) Yep, taking that one to church. Oh yes, I grew up in the northwest, folks, and uh, born in Yorkshire, so shell suits were a part of my childhood all the way through. Uh, And uh, I remember another Christmas, uh, my Sega Game Gear with Sonic uh, the Hedgehog. And, uh, you know, so we opened one present. And then, then, you know, you had to wait ages to get back from church. And then mum would, uh, you know, she'd present the the meal. It would be sort of 2 p.m. by this point. Then there was the Queen's Speech, and then. And only then, about three or four in the afternoon, did you get to open up the rest of the presents. And here's how it was done. You would sit in a circle. The family and whoever else had joined us. And one by one, each member would have the opportunity to open a present at a time. And and there was a dedicated scribe who would write down who had given what to whom so that the next day you could begin your thank you letters. That's how it was done in my house. It's the right way to do it. We got married first Christmas and went to Amy's family. And I tell you, what... What happened, we got up up in the morning, still bedraggled from the night, Uh, hadn't put on any sort of clothing, had a shower or anything, we weren't prepared for the moment, we hadn't done anything to get ready and everybody sat down on the carpet and almost as if somebody said, ready, steady, go. (laughs) (laughs) A flurry, a frenzy of, (laughs) I won't say it, Of, of opening. Of of Christmas opening, she can't defend herself, Uh, this may or may not be actually what happened, I should say, ensued. It's taken me a few years uh, to come round to Amy's way but I think she's very pleased with my progress. (laughs) Christmas brings challenge, it brings challenge for those reasons. Uh, Christmas is a time of challenge but it's also a time of wonder. And you see that particularly if you've seen Christmas through the eyes of a child. Some of you have children, others of you have nieces or nephews or or your teachers, whatever. You've seen, uh, at some point, uh, Christmas through the eyes of a child. And it enables you, when you see it through the eyes of a child, and you see them uh, maybe arrive downstairs and see the presents under the tree, or whatever it is, you just see, you catch a glimpse of the wonder of Christmas that it's so easy to lose, isn't it? It's so easy for us to lose the wonder And the challenge of Christmas. And the tradition somehow actually blinds us to what's going on. The songs, it's like the songs, it's like they anesthetize us to the reality of what's happening. We go through the motions. I want this morning, if it were possible, I want to help you recapture the wonder. And I want to challenge you. I'm coming in hot this Christmas. I want to challenge you. Let's begin with the wonder. What is the wonder of Christmas? I saw this in a blog recently. This is what somebody said a guy called Scott Sauls. Have, have you ever stopped? Here, I think actually I can bring this to you. Have you ever stopped just for a second and considered the far fetched claims of Christianity? At Christmas time. During this particular holiday, Christians all over the world, millions and millions of them, pause to contemplate a first century Middle Eastern infant, mothered by a teenage girl who had never been with a man, born dirt poor and from a small, obscure hick town, you can tell it's an American, hick town called Nazareth, this little boy This underdog whose life was allegedly surrounded by miracles such as a virgin birth, unexplainable healings, and resurrection, Christians say, is the answer to all the world's problems. The hope of the universe rests on the belief that this seemingly far-fetched fairy tale is actually true. Come on, really? Yes, really. Jesus, that little baby boy from the obscure hick town and virgin womb, he would grow up and speak these words about himself for anyone who would listen. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Talk about wonder. Wonder. I mean, Christians, the, the claim that Christians are making, the, the claims that surround Christmas are about a boy born to a virgin who is God himself. And the word in the scripture that's used is in, or oh, it's not used in the scripture, in theology uses used is incarnation. In, meaning in. <laughs> Carn. Not meaning the plant carnation, carne, which is a Spanish word, but it comes from the Latin for flesh. In fleshmen, what we celebrate at Christmas is God taking flesh. Here's how we find it in John's Gospel: In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. In the beginning was the Word. The, the, actually, the Greek here in the beginning is en arche. Arche means beginning, or it can mean ruler, but actually this is a direct quote, if you like, from the beginning of the whole Bible, Genesis 1, in the beginning, in the beginning. So what John is doing, the author of this gospel, this biography about Jesus, is to connect us with the beginning of the whole story of creation, and to say that the whole story of creation finds a new beginning here. This is a, a retelling, a, a reworking of the whole story of how everything came to be. This is big picture stuff in the beginning. And this one who's been talked about in John's gospel, the word, that's his, sort of, his rap name, if you like. That's the name that's given to this hero of this story. This one was with God in the beginning, but it's more than that. He was active in creation. Here's what it says. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made. Are you feeling the wonder? He wasn't just there. He was the one creating. I mean, your fuses right now should be blown. Your mind should be completely overwhelmed. How have we domesticated this truth? How have we done it? How have we made it about reindeer and tinsel and baubles? I submit to you this is the most controversial and radical thing that's ever been claimed in all of human history. Through him all things were made. Through him all things were made. You were made. This bread was made. This table was made, the floor was made, the sky, the sea, the stars, sound, emotion, blood, flesh, all made through this one. And there came a moment, as John has it, where the word became flesh. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh. Now, I've not told you the full story. Who's the word? Well, for for Greeks and and Greco-Roman culture is the sort of the soup in which John is writing. It's the intellectual background into which and from which he's speaking. For the Greeks, This word, word, was particularly significant. And the word for word, if you're still with me, is logos. It's the word we get logo. Uh, Some of you have logos on your hats or on your clothes. Or it's the word uh, that we get, ology, theology. Uh, Can you think of any other ologies? They've all gone, Scientology, probably not right for a Sunday morning. (laughs) (laughs) It means the study of psychology, thank you. Any others? Biology. Biology, There's the obvious one. Why is Scientology at the front of my mind? I don't know. you pray for me later. Ology, it's it's to do with the study of stuff. Now, for the the Greeks again, the Logos was the the impersonal force behind all of reality. Right? And, And from the Logos came all wisdom, all enlightenment, all knowledge, all understanding. And the purpose of life was to connect with and understand and comprehend the Logos. That was what life was for. That was what life was. But it was an impersonal, a massive, out there uh, wisdom. Couldn't touch it. Couldn't come close to it. And so what John is saying here is that that word, that divine logos has become flesh and blood. And as Eugene Peterson says, he's moved into the neighborhood and he's done that in the person of a baby. And at this point, the Greeks are like, what... The frick! Hold the front door. Hold the phone. Shut the front door. Whatever Americans say <laughs> at this moment of staggering revelation, <laughs> you got to—you can't be serious. The word, the logos, became flesh and blood. Ah, oh, no way. The Greeks are like, no, 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 no. What about the Hebrews? What about the Jewish people? Again, John is engaging with them in this gospel. And, and for the Jewish people, if you've read the Old Testament, you know this. For the Jewish people, one of the primary concepts of God that they held on to and they just wouldn't lose it is the holiness of God. You know, Exodus uh, 3 has this moment of encounter between Moses, one of the heroes, if not the hero, outside of God, of the Old Testament. And, and Moses encounters God and, at the burning bush, it's what would have been referred to this morning. And God says, look, Moses, I really want you to... Come close to me, but you've got to understand that if you're going to come anywhere near, you need to recognize my holiness and, and I need you to take off your shoes because the ground that you're on is holy ground. And you've got to understand that you cannot come close to me and remain the same. Indeed, you've got to understand that if you're going to get too close, you're going to die. I'm that holy. I'm that powerful. I'm that awesome. I'm, I'm that majestic. I'm not like you. Lest you think that I'm just a buddy, I'm God, I'm holy, I'm awesome. And God calls his people to be holy because he's holy. This is one of the key foundational principles in Old Testament worship. And so for the Hebrews, you could could know God if he revealed himself, but you certainly couldn't approach God. And you certainly couldn't do that without an invitation. He would approach you. He would approach you. And you needed to make sure that when He did, you were ready. You were holy. You'd purified yourself in the right ways. And for the Hebrews, the idea that God has come close in this way, not as a pillar of cloud or fire, not as a burning bush, not something like powerful, but in vulnerability, in weakness, in poverty. What? A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. Paul says that, doesn't he? in 1 Corinthians. But to us, the power and the wisdom of God. Why has he done this? Why would God do this? Why would the Logos become one of us? Here we go. None of us has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. See, the reason God has done this, the reason the incarnation, the reason the Logos becomes flesh, the reason the Word becomes flesh and blood and moves into the neighborhood, is because God wants to be known. He wants to be known. He wants to be known, and he wants to be loved by his people. This is the most unrivaled moment of grace and mercy in all of history. It is the moment of revelation. God has come close to us. He didn't wait until we were ready to come close to to him because he knew. He knew us well enough. We'd never be ready. We'd never be ready. There'd never be a moment where we'd have got it together enough to approach him. There'd never be probably a moment where I'd be serious enough to search for him. And so he says, Look, I'm not going to wait any longer. I cannot wait any longer. I've held myself back. But I've got to come to you. I've got to be near you. I want to be one with you. And he wanted to be one so much with us that he became one of us. He bridged the distance between his creation and him, the creator, by becoming part of the creation. And that means in the 21st century in Nottingham that God has come near to you. And that means that God has come near to you before you were ready. And it means that there is nothing whatsoever that can stop him coming close. God has not come close just for the religious people. The Sunday attenders, the tithers, blessed shall they be. He's come close to all people, all flesh. Every person, the sinners, the tax collectors, the outsiders, the irreligious, the hurting, the curses, the foul-mouthed, and everyone else, God has come close. He's come close. He's come close to you. He's come close to you in your best day. He's come close to you in your worst day. As we think back on this last year, I guarantee every one of us can think of moments where we revel in, we highlight, we celebrate. Those are the ones that go in your Christmas letter if you still do such a thing. But there'll also be moments of pain, regret, and shame. He's come close to you in those moments too. You can know him. Everyone can know him. Because the logos has become flesh. The word has become flesh. God has come close in this non-threatening presence. A baby. Who doesn't like a baby? Cooing away. God cooing away. What? What? Can you feel, are you tasting the wonder of it? It's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. And most Christmas sermons end here, don't they? And we'll go home and after this we'll sing a few carols just to buck us up and then we're on our way and ready. We're ready. I'm ready for Christmas now. He preached such a, oh, it was great. It was really stirring. I like it. And then we sang that, my favorite one, Hark the Herald. But I'd be doing an injustice to the story if I didn't, celebrate, if I didn't tell you the next bit. Because this, the story's full of wonder. And we've missed the wonder, and I, hopefully you've captured some of it here, but the story's also full of challenge. And the wonder without the challenge is only half of the story. There's so much more to say. There's the challenge of his greatness. Or we might say the challenge of his holiness. Let's stick with that. This Hebrew notion of the holiness, the utter holiness of God, we are challenged by his holiness. You know, the Hebrews had that concept. The Greek had that impersonal God, the Logos, who was way out there. And he was distant, but it was big. It wasn't he, it was a force. Whatever else it was, it was big. And I want to say that that's a challenge to us in our culture. Because I think when we think about God, if we think about him at all, he's cuddly, isn't he? He's cuddly. And uh, on Christmas, he's the kind of God who, uh, after a Christmas dinner, he lies back, he's had a sherry, and he's just cuddly. And there he is on the couch with his feet up, and he's, he's asleep. God is asleep, but he's cuddly and kind and nice. That's the God of our culture. If there is a God at all, it is that God. It's not the kind of God that could threaten anyone or threaten anything or even really substantially do anything. That's the God of our culture. Domesticated, where there isn't just utter secularization, the God that we have uh, spoken about certainly isn't described as being holy. Holy. But, you know, we see this in our language. I mean, how many times on the streets do you hear the name of God use as a curse word? It's normal, totally normal for that to be part of regular conversation. I often have fun with that. If somebody says, you know, somebody around me says, drops the J word, or off, you know him too. That's amazing. What is, he, what is he saying to you at the moment? Amazing. You, know, you can have fun with that. Maybe do some of that over Christmas. The Jews, the Jews would not even dare to name God. They created other names because His name was so holy they wouldn't even utter His name. And we speak His name generally as if it's something we picked up in the gutter. It's not just our culture, this is in the church too. I said I was going to challenge you, didn't I? When was the last time you read the Bible? And you said, my God, I don't like that. That's what you're saying to me. I'm going to reorder my life around it. My God, that doesn't fit with what I wish were in this book. But because you are holy, because you are great, because you are awesome, because you are mighty and powerful, I'm going to shift my thinking. I pray that you would help me. We've invented this way of working around the challenge of the scripture. We call it theology. Well, when you look at the the context of it, things have changed. We need to update God for the modern man, the modern woman. And certainly there's some value in describing and discovering context. But I want to submit to you that God is holy. That he means what he says. And that rather than asking him to change his opinion, you might have more traction in your spiritual life if you submit and surrender your opinion to his. Your opinion around the decisions you make. How you spend your time. Who you spend it with who you choose to date, who you choose to marry, the decision whether you feel called to be celibate, the decision what job to take, all manner of decisions. We might say, well, that's that holy picture, that great, big, awesome picture. That's the Old Testament, isn't it? And certainly we do see pictures in the Old Testament of God encountering people in his holiness. Isaiah is the classic one. Isaiah comes before God, this vision of God in the temple. I'm going to cut to the chase. Here's the context. Everything's shaking. (laughs) And then this is what Isaiah says. Well, this is what the angels say. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shut. The temple was filled with smoke. Folks, it's not a smoke machine. It is actual smoke from the presence of God. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah is in the presence of God and he falls on his face. He says, Woe to me. (laughs) Woe to me. I can't translate that to you this morning in a way that won't offend you. Woe to me. I am ruined. As I said to you before, Isaiah spent the rest of this book so far pronouncing woe on every other nation around Israel. And he comes into the presence of God, he says, woe to me, I'm ruined. You ever done that? Pronouncing woe on all your neighbors and if only they do this, can't they see they should be doing this? And then you come into the presence of God and actually what you say is, woe to me, who What was I thinking, dispensing advice to everyone else? I better take a look at that log in my own eye. You might say, well, that's an Old Testament vision. Well, I'm here to tell you. We see it in the New Testament too, Revelation 1. John, the author of the Gospel of John now writes another book. It's a prophetic book. And he describes a moment where he sees Jesus. And again, Jesus is just covered in light, his Hair is white like wool, is white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice look, it's an out there vision. He's with God, he's with Jesus in Jesus' presence. And what does he do? I mean, Jesus is mouth of a sharp double edged sword. This is frightening. Here's what we say. See John saying, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I fell at his feet as though dead. The grandeur, the greatness, the holiness of Jesus. John is on his face before Jesus. This is the one who was in the manger. And now here he is revealed in light, in majesty, in power, in greatness, in holiness, and in wonder. And John is on his face. You know, if an angel of the Lord showed up this morning, we'd have a job on our hands to stay on our feet. If God Himself, if Christ came into the room, we would melt. There's not a single one of us that would survive that glory. It's a challenge. We shrink God. We shrink God. We domesticate Him. And we do it at Christmas all the time. We think that just because He is in a manger, He must be manger sized. He's a little mini, little mini God. No. If you lose the holiness of God, you lose the wonder. We must rediscover, recapture the wonder. The wonder of Christmas is that the holy God has come close. Let us be a place where God reestablishes the fear of the Lord. The fear of his name, but the second challenge is the challenge of his closeness. Ooh. Oh, the Greeks had it, didn't they? An impersonal god, one who was a sort of at a distance. We could keep him at a distance—a a divine, impersonal force. He was—it was rather out there. But this God, the God of Christmas, is not out there. He's right here, all the time, all the time. Ready to break in. There's more than a little bit of Greek in us, isn't there? There's more than a little bit of Greek in our culture. How many of your friends? How many people at work? How many people do you hear say, maybe you're one of them, uh, I'm spiritual but not religious? Isn't that the sort of mantra of our time? And here's what that, let me decode that for a minute. What that means is I like the idea of some kind of being or force or power or... Logos kind of thing out there. I want to know that the universe is a little bit more enchanted than the Victoria Center seems to be, you know. I want to know there's a bit more going on than just trips to Lidl. I want there to be some meaning. And so I do yoga and I do some other things. I'm sort of working it out. But notice, I'm working it out. And I'm determining and deciding which bits, pick and mix, which bits from which place I like and which bits I don't. In other words, what I want to do is at all times and in all places remain in control of the nature of the God who is in my life. The last thing, I, absolutely last thing I want, I, the last thing I want is a God who would displace me from the throne. A God who might be more of a God than I am. A God who would challenge me in that way. But again, we do this also in the church There are parts of every one of our lives we'd just rather him not come close. Decisions we've made or things that we think, I'm absolutely in this camp. His closeness for us becomes a challenge. We'd rather keep him at a distance. We'd rather keep him at arm's length. But the God of Christmas, the God of wonder and holiness won't stay there. He's not come for for that purpose. He's come close to stay close. He wants to be close. And there is no part of our lives that he doesn't want authority over and governance in. Hans Urs von Balthasar, which is is the best name you've ever heard. He's a theologian. This is what he says. If you have a fire in the house, guard it well in a fireproof hearth or ember keep. Cover it up. For if even but one spark escapes and you fail to see it, you and everything that is yours will fall victim to the flames. If you have the Lord of the world in you, in your fireproof heart, fence him in well. Be careful as you carry him about, lest he begin to make demands on you. And you no longer know whither he pushes you. Hold the reins tightly in your hand. Don't let go of the rudder. God is dangerous. God is a consuming fire. God intended this for you. Take heed of his words. Whoever sets hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of me. Whoever does not love me more than father or mother, more than beloved and country, more than even himself, Is not worthy of me. Watch out. Watch out this Christmas. He is a good dissembler. He begins with a small love, and before you realize it, he's gotten total hold of you and you are caught. If you let yourself be caught, you are lost. For heavenwards, there are no limits. He, God, accustomed to infinity, he sucks you upwards like a cyclone, whirls you up and away like a waterspout. Look out! Man is made for measure and for limits. Not only, and only in the finite does he find rest and happiness. But this God knows nothing of measure. He is a seducer of hearts. Church, look out. Look out! Watch out. He's come close. And he doesn't want just a little piece of you. He doesn't want a a place in your house, an installation of the nativity. He wants the whole house. He wants the whole piece, the whole thing. There is no part of creation, said Luther, over which he does not declare mine. And there's no part of your life over which it is not his desire to proclaim mine. This Christmas, rediscover the wonder. The wonder of the story is that the holy God has come close. The challenge of his closeness. The challenge of his greatness. Are you ready for him this Christmas? Are you ready to take it to the next level in your pursuit of him? Are you ready to respond to his closeness and to his greatness? Because I, I feel to say to you and to this congregation, but more broadly to the church, there is so much, so many people are talking about a renewal, a revival, a refreshing of his presence. I am delighted by the talk and afraid because if he comes close in his spirit, I wonder whether we'll be ready for him. Consecrate yourselves Do everything required to make yourself ready for him. Respond to his initiation in your life. It's only by grace that he comes close. I'm not saying get all religious. I'm saying take his approach seriously. Ask yourself, is there any part of my life where I'm not in touch with his holiness? Where I'm not being challenged, not overcoming the challenge of his closeness? What is it he wants to do? What demands is he making now is the time to respond. Thanks for listening to some of our teaching here at Trinity. We hope it's blessed you. If you live in the city or live outside of Nottingham and want to connect more with the church, check out some of our practices and pathways on our website. We call them one, few, company, and many. We're passionate about encountering Jesus, becoming like him, and doing the things that he did, both individually and in our lives together so that we may see the church on fire and the city come alive. You can find these on our website under the Connect tab. Thanks for listening.